Welcome to the Antioch Sheffield podcast. We are so glad that you can join us for today's message. For more information about Antioch Sheffield, head to our website at antiochsheffield.org.uk. Well, it's officially December, which means it is officially Christmas season, right? Everyone agree with that, yeah? I'm not convinced by you. So uh, I appreciate this time of year often uh, causes quite a lot of controversy and a lot of um, uh, difference of opinion as to when Christmas actually officially begins. So I figured we could take a vote this morning uh, to decide when Christmas really does begin. How many of you believe that Christmas uh, should stay in lockdown until December begins? Give me a shout if you believe that. All right, there's a few hands, there's a few yeses. How many of you know that Christmas is the best time of the year and should never be contained to just one month because it's far too good? Anybody? Big shout, big hands up. Yes, okay. We have winner. Christmas should not be contained to December. I actually saw a few hands come up of people who I know have been singing Christmas carols since way before December. Um, So, yeah, in our house, we are big lovers of Christmas. Uh, Katrina and I are big fans of Christmas, um, so much so that I actually remember uh, one year uh, when we we bought our first home together, um, and we moved into our new home in mid-October, and we began unpacking our house, unloading all the boxes as we moved in, uh, and eventually we came to our uh, our box of Christmas things, our, our Christmas decorations. And we kind of chatted for a minute, and we came to the conclusion that it would be a complete waste of our time and energy to put all three of these boxes up in the loft to only bring them down again a month and a half later. That would be a complete waste of our time and energy. So we decided in mid-October that we were going to put up our Christmas decorations. Yeah. So, uh, so Christmas for us that year began in mid-October, and uh, I, I'll be honest, that was the excuse we gave, but really it was actually just because we got a little bit overexcited and uh, got carried away with ourselves and, and then decided to put them up. Um, and part of it was, you know, we just moved in, we wanted it to make, make it feel like home, and what makes it feel more like home than Christmas, right? So, uh, and we did actually uh, get some kind of uh, raised eyebrows from our neighbors as well, who several years later, after we'd like, built a relationship with them and got to know them a little bit, finally plucked up the courage to ask us what that was all about. Um, and so we've kind of learned now that actually uh, we need to uh, hold, have some restrictions on ourselves, and we have now some very strict rules as to when the Christmas decorations can go up, when we can wear the Christmas jumpers, when the Christmas music can be played and the Christmas films can be watched. We have to have very strict boundaries on ourselves, not because uh, we feel that's right, but because actually we just need to exercise some self-control. And so, uh, but, but we love Christmas, and, and for, for us, a big part of our love of Christmas is the build-up to it. It's the anticipation, the build-up to the day of arrival. And I don't know if it's the same for you, but we have all these signs uh, that Christmas is on its way, right? 
So uh, firstly, the supermarkets start to sell all these Christmas-branded products, which actually, in my opinion, does happen way too soon. It's like the beginning of September, and suddenly there's a Christmas aisle appears in the supermarkets. But that's kind of the first sign of Christmas coming. Uh, and then after that, we, we have the, the adverts start to become more and more Christmassy. And there are certain ad adverts that are iconic to the Christmas period, right? So there's the John Lewis adverts, the John Lewis Christmas adverts. It's like, our oh, Christmas is really beginning now. And then we see the Coca-Cola Christmas train. Is that, is that for anyone a big sign of Christmas coming? Yeah. And then for us, uh, we actually celebrate in our house, we celebrate Thanksgiving. My wife is American, so we celebrate Thanksgiving. And then this for us is finally the time. We can actually uh, start putting up all the decorations. This is where we go crazy. All the Christmas films start to be played. The music's on. I've got my Christmas jumper on. And uh, that is the beginning of Christmas for us. Then there's also, you know, uh, once the December hits, we then have advent calendars, right? And we're literally counting down the days. Who here has an advent calendar? Show of hands. That's most of the room. Some of you need to get one because um, you need that good bit of sweet chocolate every day. Um, so, yeah, we have all these signs that Christmas is coming, that, that, that highlight to us that Christmas is coming. And for us, it may not be the same for you, but for us, it just it builds to the anticipation and the excitement about the big day itself. But how many of you know that the first ever Christmas, the Christmas where Jesus was born, was just the same? You see, there were actually a whole load of prophecies that were basically signs that were given as to the manner in which the, the Messiah would come into the world. And the Jewish people actually would have known these signs. They were very familiar with them. And there was this anticipation, this excitement as they were looking out for these signs. They were looking out for the, the signs of the Messiah to come. Now, these days, we actually tend to overlook these signs because, you know, Jesus has already come. He's already been born. He's already uh, grown up and he's, he's died on the cross and, and the, everything has been done. All these signs have actually been fulfilled. And so it's easy for us to actually overlook them. But the thing is, these signs didn't just uh, show to us the manner in which uh, Jesus would come into the earth. They actually highlight to us and reveal to us the nature and character of God himself. And so that is why this week we're actually beginning a new series which is going to run through the Christmas period, which we're calling the Signs of the Savior. Uh, and we're actually going to take time to look at these signs these prophecies that are actually uh, pointing to Jesus. And we're going to take time to look at different ones and, and actually study them to, sh to reveal what it shows us about the character and nature of God and how we can relate to him today. Now, uh, many of you will know how the Christmas story begins in Luke. Um, uh, Stephen read it for us earlier, but it says this. It says, In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy... God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a village in Galilee, to a virgin named Mary. She was engaged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of King David. Gabriel appeared to her and said, Greetings, favored woman, the Lord is with you. Confused and disturbed, Mary tried to think what the angel could mean. Don't be afraid, Mary, the angel told her, for you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be very great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. 
the Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David, and he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. So this is fairly familiar to us. It's read kind of every year, this time of year, the story of how the angel Gabriel appears before Moses. Before Moses, that's not right at all. Um, Clearly I need to read this more often. Um, Appears before Virgin Mary uh, to proclaim that she is going to be with child, that she is going to give birth to the, the Messiah whose name is Jesus, and that he is going to rule and reign. Now, I think sometimes we are so familiar with this story that actually we overlook the fact that what the angel is doing here is that he's actually arriving and proclaiming the the fulfillment of several of the prophecies, several of these signs that were given as to the the arrival of the Messiah. And one of these signs is actually that he was uh, from the line of David. See, it says that Joseph was a descendant of David. And then right here at the end, it says, the Lord will give him the throne of his ancestor, David, and he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. So one of the signs that was given to us that the Jewish people would have been looking out for uh, and, and waiting for was that Jesus, the Messiah, was actually going to be coming from the line of David. And this is actually something that, uh, that God went to painstaking processes to make sure that he revealed to us. But firstly, we've got to go back uh, a thousand years, all the way back to the time of David, where we see this promise come in. And it says this. It says, For when you die and are buried with your ancestors, I will raise up one of your descendants, your own offspring, and I will make, him his, I will make his kingdom strong. He is the one who will build a house a temple for my name, and I will secure his royal throne forever. So God made this promise to David that his descendant would actually rule on the throne of his kingdom forever, be ruler over Israel forever. And as I said, this is something that God went to painstaking detail to make sure that he proved to us that he had fulfilled this sign. Now, how many of us love a good book? How, how many of us like to read? Show of hands. There's a good number of you. Uh, over the last few years, I've really grown to love reading. Uh, in particular, I love uh, uh, um, fictional novels. Uh, I, and I really enjoy a good crime novel. Is anyone else here a crime novel lover? Yeah. I, one of the things that always stands out to me is the author's ability to just grip you right from the beginning and keep you turning those pages, keep you wanting to know more. This is something that nobody ever taught Matthew. I don't know if you're aware of how the book of Matthew begins, but this is is how the book of Matthew begins. This is a record of the ancestors of Jesus the Messiah, a descendant of David and of Abraham. Abraham was the father of, of Isaac Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the the father of Judah. Uh, It is boring, really. 17 verses of genealogy. Now, I I think (laughs) one person here loves it. (laughs) 17 verses of genealogy. I think Matthew needed to spend a little bit more time with John. I think the the beginning of the book of John is fantastic. It's got this 
theatrical kind of poetic sense. I actually struggled to read the, the beginning of John without having the voice of all the, you know, the, the, the movie uh, trailer adverts, voiceovers. I, I, I struggled to read it without that voice in my head, like, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Like, most of us, for the first time that we read that, we're like, I have no idea what is happening. But it is interesting. I, like, I'm going to keep reading so if I can figure this one out. And Yeah, but Matthew, let's be honest with you. How many of us come to the beginning of Matthew? We read those first two verses and we go, eh, skip to the end. And, uh, great, moving on. Uh, how many of us do that? Let's be honest. Yeah, I'll be honest with you. Most of the time that I read the book of Matthew, when I come to it, that's exactly what I do. And most of us are really we're asking the same question, right? Why does this matter? Why, why do I need to know this? But God went to painstaking detail to give us evidence that Jesus came from the line of David because he wanted us to know that this was a sign that he had fulfilled. Which again, this is, this is great knowledge, right? This is good to know. But again, we're asking the same question. Why does this matter? Why does it matter that Jesus came from the line of David? How does this still apply to me today? Well, actually, I think there are a lot of reasons why David came from, uh, why Jesus came from the line of David. You see, uh, David was uh, someone who had an unusual level of zeal for God. So it was David who uh, was the only Israelite that was willing to stand before Goliath and actually fight on behalf of his God against Goliath because he could not stand to hear his God blasphemed. David was also a worshipper. He knew God intimately on a personal level. And so he wrote songs of worship about who God was. And actually, most of the Psalms are written by David. David was also a shepherd. And Jesus would eventually come and declare himself as the good shepherd of his people. But David also was a king. And part of the identity of Jesus was that he was the king of kings. And it was David who eventually would, uh, would be so full of zeal, so full of passion for God, that he had this deep desire within him to build God a, a temple, a place for him to dwell. And this is actually where we see this promise was given to, uh, to David, because uh, God actually appears to him and said, no, David, uh, this is not a task for you. This is not for you to build. There's someone else that is going to come and build it for you. Let's take a look at it again. It says, For when you die and are buried with your ancestors, I will raise up one of your descendants, your own offspring, and I will make his kingdom strong. He is the one who will build a house, a temple for my name. See, David had this prophetic insight about building the temple that Jesus was meant to fulfill, that Jesus was meant to be the one that would come and build his church that would stand forever. But that's not where I want to focus our time today. See, I want to focus on another attribute of David's life. You see, David had an understanding, he had a faith in 
God's forgiveness and his mercy. You see, I think for a lot of us, uh, we, we look at the life of David and we see him as this like, incredible godly man. Someone that we would just never measure up to. You know, someone who exercised such faith and such integrity and you know, continually like, he suffered and yet stayed faithful to God and, and did all these great things. And sometimes uh, we can look at David and see the relationship that he had with God and just think, well, I, I just don't measure up to that standard. In fact, this is actually a common conversation that I have with many of you. It's so often that I have people say to me, I just don't feel good enough. I don't feel like I measure up. I feel like I'm not at the standard. Some some people are just so aware of their own sin, their own brokenness, their own lack of perfection. And they see it, and, and, and what it tells them is that they don't measure up to the standard that God has for where he he blesses people. I've lost count of the amount of times that people have said to me, you know, if you, if you knew who I really was, you'd know God could never use someone like me. We often have this view of David that he was this incredible person, and that, that is, is true. There's so much about David that was incredible. But God didn't choose David to be his, be his lineage because he was perfect. See, David was far from perfect. In fact, there was one particular point in David's life where he actually almost completely blew it, completely messed everything up. And many of you will be uh, aware of this story, but uh, a few years into David's reign, He's standing on the, the rooftop of his palace, and he actually should have been out fighting a battle with his men. But instead, he's, uh, while his men are out fighting, he's, he's at his palace, and he's stood on the rooftop, and he's, he's looking out, and suddenly he sees this beautiful woman. And as he looks at her, he begins to desire her. And then he, he begins to inquire as to who this woman is. And he finds out it's Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah. Now, Uriah was one of God's mighty men. He was one of his soldiers who was actually out fighting in the battle that David should have been leading. And so David sees her, and he's just uh, bewitched by her. And so he, he has her come over to the palace, and he commits adultery with her. And then uh, shortly after uh, Bathsheba, she discovers that she's pregnant, and so she informs the king. And in a panic, the king invites Uriah off the battlefield to give a report of everything. And then he tries to get him to actually go to bed with his wife, to cover his tracks. But the problem is, Uriah, uh, he's a godly man, and he, he, he's a man of integrity, and he, he couldn't bear the thought of him being able to enjoy sleeping in his own bed and uh, enjoying the luxuries of home life when his own men are out fighting and sleeping in tents. And so instead of doing what he, David asked him to do, he actually goes and he sleeps in the, the castle gate with the soldiers. And so, again, David, in a panic, his plan hasn't worked to cover up his sin and so he, he hatches a plan to kill Uriah on the battlefield. Uriah is sent out to the, the deepest part of the battle, the worst part of the fighting, and uh, the leader of the army is given instructions to pull everybody else back so that Uriah would die. This isn't 
a small thing. This is a big deal. You know, this is a sin that costs somebody, in fact, multiple people, their lives. David committed adultery and murder. And according to Mosaic law, he should have been killed. He should have been stoned for both of these. David should have been killed literally twice over if that would have been physically possible. But that's not what happens to David. You see, David understood something about God and his nature and character that I think a lot of us still to this day struggle to actually understand and relate to. And so David, in this place, he, he, actually, God actually comes to him and confronts him and actually uh, points out, God, David, you have blown it. Like The penalty of this is death. But David actually begins to cry out to God, and he repents of his sin, and he writes this psalm. Uh, psalm 51 is his, his lament, his, his prayer of repentance to God, and it says this, Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love, because of your great compassion, blot out the stains of my sin. And then later he goes on to say in the same chapter, he says, Purify me from my sins, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. You see, we have to remember that this is Old Testament. This is pre-Jesus coming. Jesus dying on the cross as an atonement for our sin. Now, they're still living under the Old Covenant, which is the law, which states that we have to meet this standard in order to receive God. And so the penalty he should have received, as I said, it was death. He should have died. There should have been no more lineage of David. But David understood something about the heart and the character of God that meant that this wasn't his story. You see, David understood that God was a God of mercy that even though the law demanded his death, that God was able to offer forgiveness, and that if that forgiveness was given, he would be clean. He would be washed whiter than snow. See, I think there are a lot of us here who are sat here today, and you still don't feel as though you're worthy. I feel like there's some of you here today who are sat there and you still have a sense of shame over your sin. You're all too aware of the things that you've done wrong and they weigh on you, there's this weight on your shoulder. And maybe uh, you're carrying the weight of shame for a decision that you made. Maybe it was uh, that you had an abortion and you regret that decision. Maybe you've been stuck in sexual sin just sexual brokenness that you can't escape. Maybe for you it's anger or pride. Maybe it's something to do with the way that you treated someone, a broken relationship, something that you did or said that caused hurt or damage to someone. Or maybe it's just that you struggle with judgment towards people. Maybe it's that you, you told a lie and that lie has had an impact on other people. 
See, I think we're all, uh, we all relate much more easily with our flaws, our mistakes, and our sin. And these can become places of shame that hover over us, that we carry with us. But what David has shown us, and what the lineage of Jesus still being connected to David shows us, is that God is a God of forgiveness, that God is a God of mercy. This is what is available to each and every one of you today. This grace and this mercy is available to every single one of you today. And Jesus, God demonstrates this in that he continued to be faithful to his promise to David, despite the fact that David completely blew it, despite the fact that he should have been stoned to death. He repented and God gave him mercy. And as a result, a thousand years later, an angel would come to Mary and tell her that she is going to give birth to the Messiah through the lineage of David. This is why God came. This is why Jesus came to us. God wants you to turn to him, to look for his forgiveness, to rest in his mercy. It's in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. It says, But if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all wickedness. If we confess to him, if we confess our sins to him, those places of shame, those places that we feel guilt, where we don't feel worthy of him, if we confess them to him, bring them to him, and ask his forgiveness, and he is faithful to forgive. And he can cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Now, I think the reality is some of us hear this and uh, we kind of know this in our heads to be true, right? We know that this is true, um, but we have a hard time believing in, deep in our hearts that this is true. So I think some of us, you know, maybe we've gone through this process and honestly, if you're a Christian today, then to some extent you have kind of accepted that you're a sinner, that you have, uh, ne- you have need for a savior, that Jesus was that savior and that he came to pay the penalty for your sins. But there's often, there's still a part of us that still feels the shame and the weight of this. And I, I get this, I relate to this myself. Now, I find it so easy to be so hard on myself. You know, if I, I miss uh, spending time with Jesus, if I uh, just get out of the habit of reading my Bible, if I get out of the habit of praying, you know, I suddenly, I, I can find myself thinking, oh, I'm just... I'm not meeting the standard that God has required of me. And I start to feel shame, like I'm letting God down, that I'm not a good enough Christian. Or if I lose my temper with my kids, if I get a short fuse with them, suddenly I feel like a terrible parent. I'm not measuring up to the standard. And it could be so easy for us to just feel the shame feel the weight of it. And a lot of us continue to live under it. But listen to what John says later in this same book. He says, even if we feel guilty, God is greater than our feelings. 
and he knows everything. See, I think so many of us will, will, will feel that sense of shame. Well, if I'm truly forgiven, then why do I still feel this way? If I'm truly forgiven, why do I still feel this weight of shame? But God is saying, just because you feel that way, it doesn't mean I haven't forgiven you. Just because you still feel that shame, it doesn't mean that what I did on the cross wasn't enough. Jesus has forgiven you. In fact, if, if we still feel that weight of shame over our sin, then it's not because God hasn't forgiven us, it's actually because we need to grow in our understanding of his nature, that he is a merciful, loving, compassionate, forgiving God. And so that's what I want to take some time to respond with today. I want to give us some space as we close to actually uh, just focus on just bringing those places of shame to Jesus. Giving him time to actually reveal to us his heart, his nature as a merciful, forgiving God. So to do that, we're going to take communion together. So the band, if you want to come and make your way up. We're going to take communion together because communion is uh, really, we do it as a way to remember what Jesus did on the cross. It's a way that we remember that he died for us, that he paid the price for our sins so that we didn't have to, and so that we could be reconciled back to God and brought into relationship with him. But communion is also about remembering that through that, he gave us a new covenant, not a covenant of the law, which is a standard to measure up to, but a covenant of his grace that we live under. And so what we're going to do is we're going to take some time to take communion. Uh, You'll see that there are some communion cups underneath your seats, so you can go ahead and grab one of those. But I want us to, to take this slowly. I want to take some time to just pray and meditate on God for a minute. I'm going to take some time to pray. And if you're in this room and you're feeling there's those places of shame, if you're, as I was speaking, things came to mind, those moments of shame where you just feel like you don't measure up, where you're not a good enough Christian, where you're aware of the places of sin and brokenness in your life, then this is a time for you to bring those to him, to ask for his forgiveness and receive his mercy. So I'm going to pray, and then I'll lead us through the scriptures as we take communion together. Jesus, firstly, we just come before your throne of grace. We thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you that you are faithful to hold to your promise to David even in his lack of faithfulness. Lord, we thank you for the example that he gave that we can come to you knowing that you are a loving, merciful, forgiving Father. That as we come and confess to you that you are faithful to forgive. That we can live free from shame So Lord, I just pray over everyone here 
who feels that sense of shame, who's living under the weight of it, I just pray you'd lift it right now. Take it away. Lord, I pray for those broken relationships where there's been damage done, where there's no longer uh, communication and the weight and the shame of living under that. We speak your grace, your mercy, and your forgiveness to it. Lord, for those who have just drifted in their faith, those who have just become, uh, feel they've come bec- become complacent in their walk with you. God, we thank you that there is grace and mercy and forgiveness available. Lord, as they come to you, would you just show them that grace and mercy? pray for those who uh, are in this room and several who are just feeling the weight of sexual sin, sexual brokenness. Maybe it's uh, sex outside of marriage or uh, addiction to pornography. God wants you to know this morning that there is grace and mercy and forgiveness for you. He's just inviting you to come to him to repent, to give it to him and just receive that grace and mercy. His promise to you is that there is no condemnation. Romans 8, 1 says, for there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because the law of the spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. You no longer need to walk under that place of condemnation. You are free in Jesus' name. Lord, I pray for those who just feel this pressure to perform, this pressure to meet a standard that is worthy of you. Lord, I thank you that you love us first. We love you because you first loved us. That you came and died while we were still sinners because you loved us. That we don't need to meet a standard. We don't need to uh, just be somebody. Thank you that there is grace and mercy available to us. And Lord, I pray as we take communion together now, Lord, I pray that you would reveal to us the height, the width, the depth, the length of your love for us, the grace and the mercy that you have extended us. Show us just how far you have removed our transgressions from us. Lord, as we take this uh, communion together, that we would just remember the price that you were willing to pay for our sins, that we have been washed whiter than snow, and that we walk in a new covenant together.
read the scriptures together as we take communion. It says, On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread and gave thanks to it. Then he broke it in pieces and said, This is my body, which was given for you. Do this to remember me. Let's take the bread together. same way he took the cup of wine after supper saying this cup is the new covenant between God and his people an agreement confirmed with my blood do this to remember me as often as you take it Father, as we take this communion together, we give you thanks, we give you praise, and we worship you because we are forgiven, because we have been set free, because your blood was shed, your body was broken for our sake so that we could be reconciled back to you. Lord, we thank you that we live under a covenant of grace. Lord, I pray that you would show us, teach us what it means to understand, not just in our heads, but in our hearts, your nature and character of mercy. Teach us to live in it all the days of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening today. To listen to more messages like this one, head to our website at antiochsheffield.org.uk forward slash podcast. We are looking forward to seeing you soon.